0: Um, I was trying to imagine an illustration that would help. And so I started thinking, um, you guys, hopefully you don't think I'm too silly about this, but I started thinking about all the people in history who have married into royal families. Um, I'm not like a person that follows the, the royal family in England right now, but I thought, I wonder how many people, I thought it would be just kind of a small, um, oh, I missed it. They're supposed to have verse fourteen at the bottom, but I uh, apparently I didn't put it in there. Um, anyway, uh, I was wondering how many people in history have started out just common, ordinary people and become members of royal families. And I, it should have been obvious to me right away that uh, that there were a ton, right? Because if if one person is designated royalty, well. The, the line is going to die out if people don't start coming into that line like fresh blood, right? Uh, the line's going to die out or get really weird, like some of the the emperors in Rome that we that we read about. Um, so, uh, or, or Herod's line. I don't know if you've ever looked at Herod's family tree, but it's really weird, right? It's one of those kind of growing up this way, then growing straight for a while trees. Um, but anyway... Um, the idea of joining into a royal family just seemed to me so neat that a person could start out having no name having no fortune having no influence having no power and then they marry into a family where all of those are present and it's not by virtue of that person but it's by vi- by virtue of their marriage and by virtue of their new name that they have influence that they have power that they have wealth That people know who they are. Um, Even with the most recent additions to the royal family. It just astounds me how these people's names are in the papers all the time. And people are like, what are they wearing? And what are they doing? And what are they saying? And are they getting all things right? And I'm like, wow, who cares? Right? But there is a royal family that really, really does matter to each and every one of us. Or ought to. And we are brought into this royal family not by any virtue of our own but by the virtue of the bridegroom by the virtue of Christ and that was the answer to the first question that i had as i read chapter 10 or the first 18 verses of chapter 10 how can i be perfect i know my sin how can i be perfect so I'm going to take you through first 18 verses. We're going to read them all because I think it's important that we read the whole, eight, the whole section to see where the author is going, but it's also too much to really talk about in one, in one setting. So we're going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to look at just really the first question of how is it that we're perfect, right? Um, so let's pray, and then we'll read the text. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. For your love, for your mercy, thank you so much for Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for the heavenly bridegroom uh, who calls uh, all who are willing to come to him by faith. And for those who do, he reconciles us to yourself. Not by virtue of anything that we've done, not by any quality that we possess, but because of your great love. And through his work. Thank you so much for Jesus Christ. God as we come to your word today. Help us understand. Uh, Lord you know that. Uh, there's so much information in these 18 verses. I don't know that I could possibly convey them. In, 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 the, in, a, in a great way. Um, but I do ask that in, to the best of my ability. Um, and to the extent of our need. That you would speak to us through the word. Uh, that you would challenge us with your word, that you would encourage us with your word, and that you would enable us by your word and by your spirit to live a life that pleases you and to bring you much glory. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, please open them up to Hebrews chapter 10. uh, If you haven't already, and we're going to read the first 18 verses. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all, and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sin. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice, and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First he said, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor will you please with them though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time, One sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he awaits. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them in their minds, on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Now, I want us to see the big picture first. So I'm just going to walk us through, hopefully quickly, the progression that happens from verse 1 to verse 18. Because really what, what the author of Hebrews is doing is he's closing out not just the high priestly ministry, but really the whole, the whole text to this point, he is closing it out and showing us in a big picture how it is that Christ did what he says Christ did in chapter 1, verse 3, I think, when he says he provided a purification for sins. What does all that mean? And he, and, and he explained it over the course of the next nine chapters. And now in chapter 10, he's closing it out and he's taking us into uh, his call to perseverance. Now he's given us a couple of warnings so far. But now, in the rest of the, the, the letter from, from 819, or from 1019 uh, through chapter 13, he's going to give us a whole lot of practical um, outworkings of what God has done through Jesus Christ in our lives. Um, and, I, and I've said it before, and I'll say it again, the reason we're taking this, this first section of, of really 1 through 10:18, so seriously and so slowly is that if we don't have a well-developed, full understanding of what Christ has done for us, then we're going to turn the advice in chapter 10, uh, 10, 19 through the rest, we're going to turn it into some kind of empty moralism. We're going to turn it into a list where we check the boxes. And that's not what that is. Christ has checked all the boxes. He's calling us to emulate him. And and ten nineteen through the rest is how do we emulate him, not how do we earn his love or his favor or be saved. So we want to make sure we make that distinction. That's why I'm trying to take my time uh, in these first 10 chapters. So the big picture here of what happens in 10 uh, through 18, he says in, in verse 1, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. And because it's just a shadow, it can never uh, endlessly, year after year, make perfect uh, those who draw near to worship. Now, we talked about, we've used the Lord's Supper as an example before, right? If there was no sacrifice of Christ on the cross, then this bread and this juice would have no meaning. This bread and this juice have meaning because of what Jesus did on the cross. Because of his actual body broken, his actual blood shed. Aside from that, there's no value. And aside from true faith, there's no value in this. So you could eat this bread all day long, and I don't know, maybe it'd give you a stomachache. You could drink the juice and it'll stain your teeth. If you drink it all day long, you drink nothing but this juice. It's not about this bread and this juice. It's about what Christ did. It's not eating the bread and drinking the juice that makes us holy. It's what Christ has done. So he says, the ritual couldn't actually accomplish what God had always purposed to accomplish through the reality. The shadow could never give you what the substance would do. That is why, he says, the first worshipers still felt guilty. That's why they had to offer offer sacrifices for sin year after year. They kept sinning. They kept feeling guilty because the sacrifices they provided couldn't actually take away their sinfulness. It couldn't make them perfect. It could temporarily allow them to continue to interact with God. And he says in verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And then verse 5, a really important therefore. That's why Christ came into the world. Because the blood of bulls and goats wasn't going to cut it. It had to be a real, valuable life sacrifice. And we have talked about the infinite worth of Christ. So I'm not going to revisit that. And then he talks about how sacrifice and offering were not really the goal of the law. Sacrifice and offering was a way to answer for the sinfulness of men. What God actually wanted was obedience. There are several times when God points the people back to Deuteronomy, uh, where he says, you know, I called you as my people, and I told you to obey me. I didn't command sacrifices as like my first priority. He wanted obedience. The sacrifice happened because the people were imperfect. And so in 5 through 7, he's talking about how Christ came to actually fulfill the law. One who would actually be submitted to God's will. One who would fully obey God, even to the point of death. And then through that death, uh, verse 10, through that sacrificial death, were made holy. That is set apart. He's going to talk about being made holy, and then he's going to talk about uh, being made perfect. Just like pita bread doesn't make you holy and pita bread isn't a remembrance of the sacrifice of Christ, but the Lord's Supper is. We take ordinary pita bread, we tear it up, we set it aside, we set it aside to a holy use to be an example of what Christ has done. In in a similar way, we are not sinless as human beings ever, but Christ took us out of the world and set us apart that we would be made holy. Holy. And then verse 11 through uh, 15, or 14 rather, talks about how uh, the old sacrifices couldn't make a person, couldn't take away sin, but through the one sacrifice that Christ made, our sin is taken away. We are made perfect forever. Those who had been set apart are actually made perfect. And then he calls us into, in, He's going to call us into in 19 and on. How do we put this into practice? These laws that are written in our hearts, what should it look like in our lives? I wanted to divide up this section of 1 through 18, but it's incredibly, I mean, this, this particular section, Hebrews is, has been a challenge, honestly, to me this whole time. Um, but this particular 18 verses was a challenge to me how to divide it up. Because this idea of perfection is all the way through, this idea of what Christ has done is all the way through, but yet there are several, uh, several things that we need to deal with. One of those things that I want to deal with was perfection, and one of those things that I wanted to talk about was the will of God versus the will of us. Because I think that he answers, he brings those things to light in the first four verses. I should have recopied the first four verses, but I didn't. So we're going to read the first four verses again, and then we'll look at this slide where I kind of broke it down into his progression uh, here. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all, and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So I broke it up this way for us. One, we have a statement. The law can't make anybody perfect. We've read that before. We don't need to go over it again. It's only a shadow. The reality, the thing that can make us perfect, is Christ. He says, otherwise, he's using logical examples to show how the first Uh, covenant, how the law, how the original priesthood was ineffective in making us perfect. He said, had it been able to make us perfect, had it been able to make the worshiper perfect, um, they would have been perfected, cleansed, once and for all. It would have been done with. You would have read about so and so who made a sacrifice and he never made any more again. Why? Because if he had been perfect, he would have stopped feeling guilty for his sins. And then once he has stopped feeling guilty for his sins, he would have stopped offering sacrifices. And we would have numerous biblical examples about how that happened. But we don't. Why? He says, this is to show you that the law is not able to take away sins. The law is not able to make you perfect. One of the things that I found extremely uh, important that's missing from this progression that he doesn't mention and that he hasn't mentioned anywhere in the book, is that the people stopped sinning, or that they could have stopped sinning. Notice, why do we feel guilty? Because we sin. But he didn't say they would have been perfected and stopped sinning. And that's unfortunately one of the places that this idea of biblical perfection can take people. It can take them to the false teaching of perfectionism. The idea that somehow in this life, we can stop sinning forever and never sin again. It's a false teaching. And here's the way our minds work. I'm going I'm to show you this second slide. In this second slide, I kind, of, I, I kind of said, okay, well, took the one through four and said, okay, now that we do have the reality of Christ, what's the situation on these three particular things? We have been made perfect forever. The text tells us so in verse 14. That's beyond dispute. You, believer, who are a genuine believer in Christ, who have genuinely submitted your will to God's, repented and trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, you're perfect forever. You have been made perfect forever. But have we stopped feeling guilty? Tell me anybody, do you never ever feel guilt for sin? I'd like to know. Have you stopped sinning? Have you come to the conclusion? Neither have I. That kind of gives us a problem, right? In our guilt, do we, need, do we feel like we have to do works? I know I have talked to believers before who say, you know, I, I, I sin and I realize it and I go to God and I know he's forgiven me, but I still feel the need to do things to make up for it. I still feel like I got to just do a little bit more, serve a little harder, love a little deeper. So does that mean that we haven't been made perfect. Do you see the problem here? We're still sinning. Why are we still sinning if we've been made perfect? And is that what perfection means? That drives the question, what does it mean to be perfect? Now, I thought about different ways we could talk about this, because one, we could say, what does it mean to be made perfect? Well, let's start with God, right? What does it mean that God is perfect? It's from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 3 and 4. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect. All his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is he. One of the places where we see that God does not sin. Part of God's perfection is that he doesn't sin. If we were to talk about God's perfection in all of the ways that he is perfect, it would take us all day. But in regards to sin, God is flawless. He never does wrong. We're called to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. So doesn't that mean that we should have no sin, that we should not be sinning at all? You see, this is the problem. This is the question that this first four verses confronts us with. And this is the question that I wanted to answer, if nothing else, today. This is the question I want to answer for us. Because I want you to understand how it is that you're perfect and yet you still sin. How can we be perfect if we still sin? Well, the first way we can be perfect um, is that Christ, he did the will of God perfectly. Look at verse 5 through 7. So when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. Now next week, or actually in like three weeks' time, whenever we come back to this, um, I do want us to take us. Uh, I do want to go back to Psalm forty and look at this a little bit more. But on the surface, what we see is that Christ came to accomplish the will of God perfectly. Yes, ultimately that's our salvation. That's death on a cross. That is the sacrificial, uh, the sacrifice of atonement for all of our sin. Yes, but even before that, it's perfect submission. To the will of God. Perfect obedience. In every moment. In every every decision. Between what's, what's right. And what's convenient. What's easy. With every temptation flashing. Perfect obedience. Perfect submission. That had to happen in human flesh. It had to happen. Christ came. And he did the will of God perfectly. He is totally without sin. Secondly, Christ stands in the presence of God representing us. I want us to think back, and you can go back if you would like to with me, to chapter 2, in verse 14. In chapter 2, he's explaining the humanity of Christ and why it is that that Jesus had to be made like us, and it's really kind of condensed here at the end. He says, since the children have flesh and blood, uh, the children in view are those who God has decided to adopt into his family. He too, that is Christ, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Because as sinners, we, every single person should have the fear of death in front of their eyes because death means judgment. And we're all sinners, so we're all going to be judged and we're all going to be found lacking. And then in verse 16, he says, It's not angels that he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. So think about what he says here. Jesus stands now in the presence of God representing us, and he represents us as one of us. Fully human. Having obeyed God's law perfectly, he stands in the presence of God on our behalf. Chapter 4, verse 14. Therefore we have a high priest who has ascended into heaven, that is the very presence of God, Jesus the Son of God, so let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. And then and again in verse uh, 20 of chapter 6, um, I'll start in, in 19 actually. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. Firm and secure, it enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus stands now in the presence of God representing us. Even in chapter 9, uh, where we see his blood is on the mercy seat. So that when we see Jesus standing in the presence of God representing us, he stands representing us as sinless. It is through the sinlessness of Christ, Christ sinless in God's presence, that we are reckoned as sinless, that we are reckoned as righteous. Both his righteousness is accredited to our account and his sinlessness is credited to our account. Now again, he saves us perfectly because he always intercedes for us. Uh, chapter 7, verse 25, is one of the m- most beautiful verses uh, that's here uh, in, in in Hebrews. And he says, uh, I'll start in 23, there have been many of those priests, the, the earthly high priests, since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. So, not only is Christ representing us, standing as our representative, as our new Adam, as our head, as the one who represents every single one of his followers, every single one of those who have placed their trust in him. What does he do with our sin? Because we always continually sin. We're not just talking about the past sins. We're talking about our current sins and even our future sins. Well, because Jesus is always alive, he is eternal, and he's always in the presence of God, and he continues as a priest forever, he is able to make a continual intercession for us. So that as we sin, this is why in in, in 1 John, John writes, so that when you sin, we have an advocate in Jesus Christ. And if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive your sin. He's the eternal high priest, eternally in the presence of God, eternally offering intercession. So the sin that we do commit, Christ intercedes for us. And then, uh, I wanted to look at uh, chapter 9 just a couple of... A couple of verses in chapter 9. Uh, verse 12 He did not enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place, the presence of God, once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Verse 14 um, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death? so that we may serve the living God. This is why, though we continue to sin, the eternal uh, uh, redemption of God through Jesus Christ even takes away our guilt of sin, cleans our consciences. This is why, when you repent, and when you say, I can't believe I've done that again, God, thank you that you've given me an eternal sacrifice, I mean, these are just... Please don't hear me as giving you a form to you have to finish. Um... But when you go to him, he's always able to make intercession for you. That's why your conscience is clean. It's not because you deserve it. It's not because you've not committed any sin. It's because he is able, through his perfect one-time sacrifice, to clean your conscience. That's the difference between us and the Old Testament saints. He sacrificed to take away our sin. Now, finally, God said he will remember our sin no more. And this is really, this is the clincher. This is the final, the final reason why. 10-10, you are set apart as holy. You're not holy. You don't come to God holy and clean. You don't come to God perfect and negotiate on behalf of yourself or plead your own uh, repentance necessarily—you do have to repent, and repentance is a sign of real faith. But it is the blood of Christ that sets you apart. Like I said earlier, that's just pita bread that somebody tore up and put in the container to be to be a memorial for us. It's still ordinary pita bread, and you are still an ordinary sinner. That Jesus has called out of the world and set apart and made holy. But by his sacrifice, that holiness will happen. It will come to pass. And then in verse 14, that sacrifice, that same sacrifice that sets you apart as a child of God, is the same sacrifice that by it, you are perfected forever forever. In God's sight. Remember, because of the intercession of Christ, because of the righteousness of Christ, because of the obedience of Christ, because of his being an eternal high priest and making eternal uh, redemption possible and standing, always making intercession for you. But finally, it is because God said in verse 17, which is really a quotation from Jeremiah 31, that through this new covenant, in the blood of Christ now we understand it. God says, I will remember their sins no more. It's not even our ability to have our conscience cleaned, like from our perspective. It's not that it's not that, that makes us clean, ultimately. It's not that that makes us perfect. It's that God has promised through the work of Christ... All of the work of Christ that the author of Hebrews has been explaining that he's not going to remember your sin anymore. You're going to remember it moment to moment and you're going to confess it and Christ always cleans you. And God has said, I will not remember your sins anymore. That's why we're perfect. It's not because we stop sinning. Now, obviously... Once we start reading 10.19, we're going to start feeling like, hey, we need to do, do, do. And we do. We need to obey. We have to obey. But even that isn't what makes us holy. Even that isn't what makes us perfect. Through all the finished work of Christ, through his work as high priest, through his sacrificial death, through his perfect blood, through his perfect obedience, God has said, I will remember their sins no more. That's how we're perfect. In spite of our sin, that's how we're perfect. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says this. When you were dead in your sins and in in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our debts, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away Nailing it to the cross. God took our sin away. Through Christ. Remember that royal family. We didn't join a royal family because we came from good stock. We didn't join a royal family because we're good looking in any kind of way. Spiritual or physical. I praise God for that. It's because of the one who looked on us and had pity on us. And married us to God. Who loved us and decided that he would make us his bride. We are perfect. Because he is perfect. And that's the only strength that we have. To move on and actually try to purify ourselves. That is actually try to obey God. It's because he has counted us holy. Counted us perfect. And called us his own. And we have all the rights and the privileges. Of sons and daughters. Because we married into the family. Let's, let's pray, and then we're going to praise God. Um, I asked Jason if we could sing, uh, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me, because as we were practicing it this morning, I'm like, this is exactly what the author of Hebrews is telling us. It's not us. It's through Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You so much that You have given us Jesus Christ, Your Son. Perfect in righteousness, perfect in obedience, perfect in holiness. The perfect sacrifice made perfect atonement, made perfect in eternal, enduring uh, redemption possible and stands in your presence now interceding for us. That through his blood you see us all perfected in him. Though we are unlovely, you see us as spotless because of the love of Christ. Father, help us, to, help us to be faithful to that. Help us to bring you glory. Thank you so much for making it possible and assuring it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.